My name is uh, John Brink. I'm the CEO of the Brink Group of Companies in Prince George, British Columbia. We are a company that is uh, have released three silos of uh, our operation. The main one is lumber manufacturing. The one, the one is uh, warehousing and logistics, and another one is real estate, residential, commercial, and industrial. The main operations are lumber manufacturing and. Uh, as some of our listeners may already know, I've been quite vocal about uh, the forest industry in British Columbia, in particular in terms of the opportunities that exist. Although, uh, you know, the last number of years have been, to say the least, a challenge. And uh, we became in particular aware of this already, uh, you know, if you look back to the around the 2000 area when uh, the region here was adversely affected by the pine beetle epidemic, uh, which virtually destroyed all the large pole pine in the interior of the province. In fact, uh, some research done by and studies were done in terms of the economic impact at the time. Uh, I believe it, uh, the report was done August uh, 2021, uh, forecasted uh, by uh, uh, Jim Chavan and, and Rob Schultz that up to 35 sawmills would shut down in the likely permanent in the interior of British Columbia. The other forecast was that, uh, uh, you know, from the sustainable jobs of 200,000 jobs in the industry, it probably would be reduced by about half that. In the interior, the Alalbukat would be dramatically reduced, they concluded, by the mountain pine beetle in, in investigation. And on the coast, a sizable chunk of the coastal annual Alalbukat has been lost to new parks in protected areas. The forecast at the time was shocking to a lot of people, but it has proven to be reality. Reality is still coming home to us. Uh, another announcement was made here in the last day where Canfor announced that their operations, sawmill operations in Chetwind and in Houston uh, the one in Chetwan will be uh, closed permanently, and the one in Houston, at least likely for the next two years, when they are contemplating rebuilding smaller sawmills, affecting close to 400 jobs. And those, again, are jobs that are considered to be direct jobs. But we use normally is uh, between two and a half and three jobs per direct job. So over a thousand or twelve hundred jobs. I believe the number was four hundred and ninety jobs actually between Chetwind and uh, Houston. So uh, close to fifteen hundred jobs gone. And uh, at least for now and the ones in Chetwind in particular likely permanent. A couple of weeks before that uh, Prince George Pulp made an announcement of their pulp line would be shut down permanently in Prince George, affecting again 300 jobs permanently. When I first came to Prince George in 1965, those mills had just been built. The, the industry was booming. 
throughout northern BC and uh, in, in the jobs and particularly in the pulp mills and the other sawmills while the mills already then were in transition consolidating uh, the industry was booming booming to say the least and the future looked extremely bright. There likely will be more sawmills shut uh, both in the interior and down the coast. The other one, the formula that is usually used four to five sawmills means one pulp mill. And again, those, those jobs and the multiplies will be devastating to the cities that rely on them. And particularly in Northern British Columbia, I'm looking at McKenzie, Chetwin, obviously Houston, Burns Lake, Vanderhoof. In addition to all of that, unfortunately, there are also value added manufacturers and there are not many left of them. Uh, you know, and again, I was extremely involved in value-added manufacturing and, uh, and, and believe that we can do more with the fiber and, and make more products for new markets and believe that there is an opportunity for investment in value-added manufacturing. I believe that for the last 60 years and before that, before I came to Canada, I started this company, uh, Bring Forest Products, which is known as a value-added manufacturer. We have been in operation for 50 years, being innovative in the products that we have manufactured. Uh, we operated mainly in the location where we are now, which is downtown Prince George in the CNR site. We operated a remanufacturing plant. What is that? Well, let's talk about that a little bit because with all the comments that have been made, including mine, I'm, I'm sometimes assuming that the public understands the difference between primary, secondary, value-added, non-value-added, and I just want to make sure that I'm trying to be clear about what it really means. Is that in the industry in British Columbia, we have different operations. The one, yeah, the primary manufactured, most of them, if not all, have tenure. What is tenure? Tenure is renewable forest licenses where they are allowed to cut a certain volume of lumber that is consistent with the amount set aside by the province. How does that work? Well, in the province of British Columbia, we grow uh, the annual allowable cut that has been uh, in the area of about 60 million cubic meters annually. The, uh, most of that is already committed in some form or fashion. It used to be uh, pretty much uh, the 60 million, fairly steady at that level until the pine beetle pandemic happened. The other part that happened is the forest fires 2018-2019, then recently announced policy changes that dealt with the deferral of old growth timber that has further reduced the amount of annual allowable cut. Other policy changes have been that more of the forest is dedicated to First Nations, and correctly so, that will share in access to the forest as well as access and the revenue. Another additional one falling in that category has been blueberry and northeastern BC, which again took a certain amount of fiber that was set aside for First Nations. 
So that has resulted in the prediction of Jim Javan and Rob Schultz made in 2021, the volume of annual albacut of timber in the province of British Columbia down to around 40 million cubic meters annually. Now, the other thing to understand is that there is a difference between the coast and the interior. The interior primarily is spruce and lodgepole pine with some cedar, very minor, and Douglas fir, some, where the coast distinctly different is mainly cedar and Douglas fir and hemlock. Different operations, different products that they manufacture. My focus will be also on the coast, but mainly on the interior as we go a little bit further in explaining where we were where we are. In terms of the primary manufacturing sector that, re that has tenure, rely on that timber to have a continuous predictable source of raw material. Now where BC is uniquely different from a lot of other manufacturing areas in the United States or in the United States or in Europe or in other places is where most of the timber is owned by companies or private individuals or companies of some structure or another. Where in BC, 96% of the timber is owned by you and me, the people. That makes it distinctly different. The incumbent government of the day is the one that sets policy or makes policy changes in terms of what should happen to that resource. So they may adjust the annual albacut or they may make changes as they did uh, with the deferrals, the old growth forest, by setting aside more of the timber that was considered to be old growth. They did that. And uh, they, uh, the other one would be the allocation of timber to First Nations. And a lot of this was done during the period of June 2021, when the then government of the day, the NDP, under the Premier John Oregon, together with the Minister of Forward, uh, Catherine Conroy, announced the intentions paper. The intention paper was endorsed by stakeholder groups. The one was First Nations, spoke to it. The second group was labor, and the third group was industry. I was asked to be speaking to it, which I did. And, uh, and, and what I indicated is that I believe that the objective of government was to set to have more involvement of First Nations, to set aside or recognize old growth forest. And the third one was very importantly, to incent investment in secondary manufacturing by others that were interested in going up the value chain. I agreed with that and I believe that I endorsed the objectives of the government to do that. Now nearly two years later, in a lot of contemplation that has happened I'm very disappointed in where the government has gone 
forward with the intentions paper, and in particular, as it relates to the value-added sector. Now, to put things into perspective, I've talked about the primaries. The view I have of the primary sector that access to timber is a privilege, belongs to the people of the province. With it go certain obligations, in, 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 including, uh, you know, uh, social obligations, uh, the, uh, you know, where timber that is manufactured in certain or harvested in certain regions should be also wherever possibly manufactured in those regions. And it was a, a critical part to the social contract and the obligation of getting the privilege of access to timber. So the 10-year system in the province of British Columbia where timber is allocated, uh, it, uh, the amount of timber set aside for harvesting is around the 60 million cubic meters annually and was around that area for a long time until there was the pine beetle infestation uh, that destroyed the large pole pine in the interior, a number of fires, then reallocation of fiber, which affected adversely the volume available for further manufacturing. And as a result, resulted in a number of mills shutting down and as well as pulp mills. So the concept of making timber available and, and to tenured companies and renewable forest license, there was a social obligation attached to that and the concept of appurtenancy, meaning that the, the timber harvested in the region would be manufactured in that region. The other thing that had happened to the forest industry and uh, another reason for the topic today is that we saw more and more value-added manufacturing. And if you look back all the way to the changes in the forest industry and something unique to the forest industry is that years and years ago in the 40s, 50s, around the Prince George area in the region here, there were as many as 600 sawmills, all small mills, mainly going in the bush, cutting the timber, cutting the lumber, and then bringing it in to Prince George to be dressed and then sent to the market. Because of government legislation that demanded that if you have access to the timber, then there has to be close utilization. That meant that government was attracting chip or, or pulp manufacturers and made very major concessions to them in terms of access to timber and committed those that were half harvesting timber that they had to chip the residuals of the log and then sell them to the pulp mills. Now, in a lot of cases, uh, if you have a round lock and we cut it into lumber, then rough and dirty speaking, uh, up to 40% of that lock likely will end up at side lumber or becoming residuals. Obviously, uh, the effect of all of that meant that the companies, the small companies, had to install the barkers and chippers. In a lot of cases, 
they did not were not able to do that because that it would cost them 10 times more than the value of the mill to invest. So a lot of those mills, if they had tenure, they sold it to bigger companies. That started the cycle of consolidations and centralizing the operations. And I'm thinking in particular the time that I first came here in 1965. The other thing that became interesting is that more and more people looked at opportunities of second-day manufacturing as it applies to lumber. So value-added companies that saw an opportunity of, of becoming a manufacturer of lumber, in particular as it related to uh, you know, lumber manufacturing, finding areas in which they could acquire lumber and finding different products. And, and uh, you know, Brink started his operation in October 1975. And we bought the lower quality lumber, and at the lower quality then represented about between 10 and 15% of the volume that was manufactured that had defects not suitable for normal building, and we would process it, cross-cut it, and, and then manufacture it into higher-grade products. I was one of the entrepreneurs, uh, typical for an entrepreneur, that had to find a way of what to do with the short pieces. I introduced finger jointing, where we have short pieces of lumber, glued them together and made longer pieces. It's quite a battle, but uh, I developed a company out of it and still today we are probably one of the largest, if not the largest finger joint manufacturer in Canada, if not North America. Low-grade remanufacturing unfortunately disappeared and because of government policy more than anything. In 2005, a company like us that had then already been in business for 30 years had become very involved in forming a value-added manufacturing group to give us representation on the dialogue on with government, with the federal government, negotiations on duties and all of those kind of things. We then, I was able to become the founding president of an organization called the BC Council of Value-Added Boot Processes. Eight associations, 800 companies that were operating throughout British Columbia. An amazing number of companies that employed thousands and thousands of people. I saw that as the future of the industry with a lot of growth. Unfortunately, the then government of the day, the BC Liberals in 2003, changed a number of policies. The one was that uh, you know, a, the concept of a potency would disappear. The other one, in terms of consolidation of companies, could be stimulated, and more and more companies bought other people's tenure. And for the value-added sector that had been able to negotiate already in the early 90s, and I was very much part of that, to make the argument with government that if you want to attract investment in value-added manufacturing, then there must be a reasonable expectation of access to fiber. If you don't have that, you will not get investment in value-added manufacturing. The government of that time, 
amazingly, also the NDP government, in particular uh, Premier Harcourt and Premier Glenn Clark at the time, agreed with us and made available to second-day manufacturers 20% of the annual allowable cut of timber in the province of British Columbia. So what it did, it stimulated a level playing field of creating the incentive of, of stimulating value-added manufacturing. Unfortunately, the then government in 2003, uh, changes to forest policy, eliminated that very effective lobbying by the major primaries, obviously. Uh, and as a result of that, in 2002-2003, what started the process of secondary manufacturers throughout the province disappearing. Then the other part that became a major part is that government and government can become very effective on being inefficient. Is where they started giving out major, major amounts of money to create new markets for lumber in other places, in particular China. And, and that sounds like a good idea. Unfortunately, they were looking for all the low-grade lumber. So what happened, all those companies that relied on the low-grade lumber lost that volume because it was all dumped into China. Why do I say dumped into China? Well, in a lot of cases, they would sell it at a lower price in China than they could sell it here. In fact, what had happened during the process is they had, the, the, the primaries made sure that they would, that secondary manufacturers would not compete with them in China for the lumber that they had been buying from the primaries. So they raised the prices and the prime, from the second days for low-grade lumber by about 20%. Very common practice to make sure that they would not compete. The other part that was the third part that became the nail in the coffer of secondary manufacturing was that although I had in my role as the president of the chair of the BC Council of Value Added Process very aggressively being involved in making sure that the, the Americans were charging duties on the lumber manufactured in BC or Canada and charge them a penalty for access to their markets. Through some very difficult negotiations, we were able then to negotiate that duties would only apply for secondary manufacturers that had no timber and had arm's length relationships with primaries would only apply to the input. So give me an example. Well, if the input cost of raw material was $100 and you added in value because of the unique products that you manufactured, two, three or $400 to it, then if it was 300, then it would be $400. If the duty was 20%, you would pay 80 to the finished products or 20 to the inputs. That part was absolutely critical. I was involved in number one, number two, number three, number four, number five, and number four I was not involved in. That started in the early 80s. Number 
five. A group formed by the BC Lumber Trade Council, which is about 10 companies exclusively, got the go-ahead from the BC government to negotiate softwood lumber. It did not include second-day manufacturers. It included five of the larger, larger companies and the five other ones, and there was no room for second-days to be involved. And either by accident or on purpose, did not include protecting second-day manufacturers, who then would have to pay up to 20% duties on the lumber they manufactured. So where are we now with value-added manufacturing as it applies to lumber? Well, since there is no access to timber anymore, because all the timber that was set aside in the small business program developed in the early 90s became, by government legislation, BCTS, BC Timber Sales. What is BC Timber Sales? BC Timber Sales represents about 20% of the annual allowable cut, and it has two categories to it. The one is category one, anybody can bid on it, and category two should have been and was minor. Category two is exclusive for people that can prove that they are secondary manufacturers. That really never developed. And so, uh, you know, that uh, that is the one that all of a sudden that was no longer available. Add to that aggressive marketing and finding markets for products that normally were manufactured by secondary manufacturers in BC nothing to do with the price. In fact, they would pay more, but government supported that. And obviously, uh, uh, you know, the people that represented the uh, major primaries were very efficient, very effective, and uh, pulling the wool over their eyes. Uh, and, uh, and they just forked out millions and millions of dollars. We have never seen a nickel of that money, nor has anybody ever represented us in the marketplace. The third one, obviously, is that, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the duties. And, uh, and, and in order to show people the effect of it, that since 2017, this company, Brink Forest Products alone, has paid $65 million in duties. We have no timber. We never had a nickel from government. We have no relationship with major 10-year holders, but we became what we call collateral damage. Did government do anything about it? I don't think they really care. And, and I say that with care because I've raised the issue many, many, many times and so far with no effect. So what did that all do then to value-added manufacturing or secondary manufacturing, as I describe it, the ones that depend mainly on lumber. It eliminated at least two-thirds of them, so there are virtually no one left in secondary manufacturing. Maybe three or four companies in Northern BC. So if I look now at BC, 90% of the lumber manufactured in BC come from, comes from north of Hope. There is no secondary manufacturing. I had hoped 
that in June of 2021, when the Premier then announced the intentions paper, together with the then Minister of Forest, Catherine Conroy, I, I was excited about it because it meant modernizing the forest industry in British Columbia. Because so far we had been critical about it because five percent, five, five, six companies, seven companies control probably seventy percent, seventy-five percent of all the annual allowable cut. If you control seventy-five percent of the annual allowable cut, you control it all because the prices are substantially lower than the market prices. So it's it's easily for you to access the incremental wood available in the open market, pay a premium for it because it guarantees you that nobody else will buy it because they cannot compete with you. So the deck is stacked. That's basically where we are. I was excited about that because to hear then uh, the, the premier stand up, then John Oregon, and 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 saying they wanted to modernize the forest industry, and and one of the main keys was uh, obviously by law, more of the timber would flow to First Nations, uh, that they would share in the revenue. I agree with all of that. I think it's huge potential. They did whatever they said on in regards to. Uh, uh, deferrals of old growth, uh, and and I, I look at old growth like ten, trees this big and 2,000 feet tall or whatever. Uh, when you, when you, once you see it, you know it, but that part went too far. We are now, because of the other interpretation, and I'm not an expert in those areas, but I'm simply saying what I understand, is that you can have a tree about that big around, it's 150 years old in the interior, and it, because it's 150 years old, it's considered to be old gold. I guess, in my opinion, I'd want too far. I believe it should be looked at, it should be changed, to make because it has stifled access to timber for the larger companies. And, and, and do not get me wrong, I'm not beating up on large companies. I'm simply saying that I believe that uh, to have a successful primary sector it is to the benefit of communities to have secondary manufacturing in combination. You cannot have secondary, healthy secondary manufacturing unless you have a profitable primary. Right now in the province of British Columbia, we are not competitive and changes have to be made to make us again competitive on the international market. And looking at this as hope, not only for us, you know, that, but more for attracting investment and value-added manufacturing in the province, in the communities like McKenzie, Chetwin, Houston, Burns Lake, and, and Vanderhoof, of more value-added manufacturing and other ideas. It has become obvious that, again, the issue is the same, that the Kofi in particular, representing primarily the majors, uh, I believe I'm the only member of Kofi that has not tenure. Amazingly, I've been on the board longer than anybody else. I'm also the vice chair. But anytime the issue comes up in terms of access to fiber and value-added manufacturing, I take off my cap and I say, I'm now here as a value-added manufacturer not as a member of Kofi, 
and and uh, and my position may well be different and in fact is different than theirs. Right now we are on the point and an announcement was made here, I believe two days ago or so, by the Minister of Forest. I've made the argument many, many times. It's what, what are the issues that still the same remains. Why would anybody want to invest in the province of British Columbia if there is no reasonable expectation of access to fiber? That's my argument. It will still flow to the primaries. Well, why? What is their problem then? Why are they against that? Well, it's very simple. Because they want to control it, one, and they want to control the cost. Because they feel likely that if second days have it, the cost may go up. Because, uh, you know, that if they then interact with them, they have to, we want to buy that lumber at market price, then they should be buying the timber that we have also at market price. That's likely one of the issues. Obviously, they have been successful by the announcement that was made two days ago. I, d I wasn't very happy about it, and, and I'm not in the habit of doing that, but I was very, if, if you want to watch my podcast that I did two days ago, uh, you know, that uh, where I got the announcement during the time that I was uh, uh, podcasting, I was, I'm going to say this, I was pissed. <laughs> to put it lightly. And it's not about me, it's not about us, I don't even want any of it. I'm saying that for the province of British Columbia, if we want to attract more, more manufacturers value added, there has to be a reasonable expectation of fiber. What the government just did together with the help of Kofi is saying there is no opportunity for value added in the province of British Columbia. End of message. So, where do we go from here? I believe, and, and I will show you a document that I use quite a few times. It is comparing Sweden, who, is, who are very similar to us in Canada in terms of size, 22 million hectares, that they have volumes that they are logging and used to log that were the same as with us, went through a difficult period 20, 30, 40 years ago. They decided to grow more forest per hectare. The other part is interesting about it actually, but I heard from my friend Jan Hedberg, who I podcasted uh, a couple of weeks ago, and you should look at it. Uh, the pine that they replanted came from BC it uh, was more effective for them than the, the PC that they were growing. But they grow more volume per hectare, 50, 60, 70, 80% more than we do. And in fact, they went through the place where they had also too much capacity, shut down many mills, then had intensive forestry, then they started to plant more wood, and then as we are now in the midterm, then found themselves, they are now approaching 80 to 90 million cubic meters annually. The problem they have now, not enough capacity. They are, and I was there when I worked in Holland, and seeing secondary manufacturing, they are very, very good at secondary manufacturing. If you want to get, give me one. IKEA as one, but there are many others.
they became very, very good at it. So what does it look like, uh, John, as we go forward, in my opinion, and I'm not claiming to be an expert, but I've been doing this for 60 years. I have a passion for Canada, for BC, and for the industry, and I become very upset if we screw it up and that, that, that we deny the opportunities for us to develop an industry that has such immense potential because we got it all. I believe there will be further shutdowns, uh, you know, in, in including the one that we just had recently, uh, two, three, four maybe uh, between the interior and the coast. Obviously, there will be further curtailments on the pulp side. Uh, I, there is virtually no value-added sector left, uh, so uh, I'm not having much hope for there any new ones coming in. And obviously, government here, with the message they send, it is if they push forward with this, which they likely will, and I will put them on notice, they are misleading in letting people believe that there isn't is an opportunity that isn't. So what I'm simply saying to the communities in Northern British Columbia, 90% of the lumber manufactured in Northern British Columbia, north of Hope, is the total volume of BC. That the communities like Mackenzie, Fort St. James, Vanderhoop, Houston, Chetwent, Fort Nelson, on and on, Prince George, Quanell, have to stand up and saying, enough, enough. And I believe the time has come to do that. I can be so vocal about it. I, it's not me. I don't need it. I don't want, I, I put government on notice with the, the little bit of wood that they want to make available, 600,000 cubic meters. That will not even support one single small sawmill for the whole province of British Columbia. It's a joke. And, and so, but I'm saying, no, I'm not going to accept that. I'm not going to sit back here, but at the same time, I have an obligation to explain, but I believe, this, and I say that respectfully, the issues are complicated to a certain extent, and, and for some, and I will be on the record as that that's the way I see it. The opportunities are huge. I believe that are we good stewards to the resource? Yes, we are. Can we do better? I believe we can. Can we be like uh, Sweden, where we're growing 50, 60, 70% more fiber than we are doing now? Yes, we can. And how long will it take? 40, 50 years maybe. Too long for me maybe, but if you look at it, stand back, uh, you know, then it's not a long time. That's our obligation to the future. In terms of now, I still believe that more value-added manufacturing can be done. I believe that up to two days ago, I think this government uh, uh, changed that, uh, and 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 I hope that another government will stand up and saying, okay, we will not accept that. And uh, and and I would also hope that I believe that the future of the industry, and I've said it on the record, is the way I see the industry, the forest industry, the sawmills in the industry will become smaller. They will be more regional, less volume, more 
focused on the profile of timber in the areas. There will be more technology, robotics, electronic, computerized, involved. And here's the key. They will employ many less people in sawmills. That's what it will look like. That's what I say. The future is innovative primary in combination with intensive secondary. Where, is the, where are the opportunities? Intensive secondary. Still, I believe that today, although unfortunately this government has said we don't care and we don't uh, want to rock the boat because we're scared of uh, the other guys not supporting us, uh, God only knows what. But in any event, that I still believe that the future is in secondary manufacturing and I still believe that today. And what will happen in secondary manufacturing? I believe that the lumber that will be manufactured by the sawmills of the future, 50% of the volume will go up the value chain. 20%, 25% of the lower quality and 25% of the higher quality. Companies like us that have invested here, operated for 50 years, employed 400 people don't cut a single tree. We want to double in size. We want to do mass timber. We want to do a lot of things up the value chain. But we alone cannot do that. I say open the door, invite investors, because they will look at our location here, NBC, and the forest that we have, and the location that we have, the transportation that we have, cost of operating, uh, you know, uh, uh, electricity and all of those. We have plenty. We are competitive globally and, and it can be attractive. But if we tell them there is no access to fiber, you will not get any investment. So I'm trying to be positive because I believe still very much so in BC. I still very much believe in the forest industry, <clears throat> but I cannot stand back and watch this and present it, misrepresent it and mislead people in thinking what, what the government announced together with Kofi is good for the industry, it isn't. And the communities have to stand up, speak out, show you the people. I cannot do it alone. And, uh, you know, but uh, I will keep being vocal about it. I believe in the industry and uh, I hope my explanation at least will be helpful. Thank you very much.